1: Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners, or like to uh, what's the word? Not tweak. I'm trying to think. What is it? What is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> Your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. As certainly that's uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants. Uh, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, Seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. uh, The edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth. And the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight, And the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be, in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar, a congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired? There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant That church, in a similar fashion, the way we do a replanting of a plant, a house plant, to give it a new lease on life. Well, my next guest tonight, I think, would suggest the answer is absolutely so. He is a gardener of sorts, a missionary, a author, and um, professor at uh, Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. He spent uh, years in Bangkok, Thailand, and uh, works as a, a church an advisor in many respects, helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight.
2: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: This is a a painful process, isn't it? Uh, Number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are, in fact, uh, facing a very uncertain future.
2: It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a, you know, a church a consultant or a fixer, but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as a full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long. They've had one pastor after another. Is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help
1: in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, This is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim in just 10 years. That, that's what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church, or at <laughs> the very least the stick to it, this uh, of those called to lead. I'm
2: told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe, but um, it really is an indication of sort of the. The, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties, and what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated lay persons, often very well meaning, begin to occupy. Leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor, and these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so, for all the good intention, intentions that many might have, in the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership. And usually, until that. Uh, is changed. It usually is Most of these churches never come back.
1: Well, but, in but in you all see. fairness, uh, Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in, and suddenly it, it moves from, here's a, a deacon so-and-so or Sister Suss and Chuch, so God bless her, is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastors left, we've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land, and so they're willing to come in and help out, and then what, it turns into uh, suddenly from um, good hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges?
2: a lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people. And they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, a, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then, if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf uh, uh, turf battles, where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it. But as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't leave the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and and they go.
1: If you've just joined the conversation, we're we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Uh, Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. A look at replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in, in Thailand. At what point and how, what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they, they called you to uh, First Calvary? And when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in?
2: Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor, and uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation. And I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were they were down to around oh 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would. 600. It looked like a little Spurgeon's Tabernacle plunked down in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but once I got in there, I realized that, that this church was virtually unleadable, and so they talked about leadership, but really they, they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discreet duties, you know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care, but really, leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about, was there is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again?
1: In your book, you refer to them as members of the, the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, there is the sense of, of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority, and we hear this every once in a while, particularly it seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor, uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't, at the end of the day, seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything, and then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a a, a small corporation or miniature fiefdom.
2: And one of the, de- the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that, that required a lot of faith, that, had res- that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, you know, the notion that we might consider Joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, Uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity according to our tradition, we will be open to significant change. And it kind of turned the tables on the you know the self appointed protectors of the tradition at that church
1: you know, I don't wish to, I want to get in trouble here with listeners and, and seem to come off as if I I have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history. But at the end of the day, as we, as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture, I mean, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a couple of basic uh, principles here um, certainly the great commission the great commandment discipleship evangelism i mean that that 's kind of the uh, the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward looking i I, I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of, uh, you know, having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run won to Christ down through the decades or the centuries, but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a, uh, okay, and so what have you done for me lately as part of, of the way <laughs> the Lord himself might, uh, might judge a church like that?
2: Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back just like you did you reach backward to the bible to to talk about what churches should do now and that's what i did with this congregation they had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh but but doctrinally sound faith infused things in their past and so the people who were who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition. They were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you look at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition. And you could find there, many times in the church's history, where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back, just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history, but if that history's rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in. And become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership.
1: Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will. Uh, down through the generations, I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compel you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, "Gee, look how great we used to be." Uh, that that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of you know our 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 relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so too ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship as we mentioned. And so that sitting in the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from?
2: That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so that and that is what I talked to them about. But now what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually what I did was expand their view of tradition, which then shamed them when they Uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case sera, a sera, or just something that's you know good for historical, you know, trivial pursuit, then they end up with a with a maybe a, a temporary you know temporary life and, and growth, but it ends up being very very shallow because they don't they don't they don't really grasp what they've been bequeathed uh, uh, fr- from the past, and so I think there's a message about the past that both sides tend to be getting wrong, mm. uh, and, uh, and the, the, the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking, they keep turning back to uh, the Reformers, turning back to the, to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're, now you're talking my language.
1: So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward and they wish to just singularly cling to the past and others are too rapid or in a rush to, to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward. And there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. We'll time out, update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine.
3: Uh, Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in because they are declining, and I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if if you see this, uh, one of the churches that I, I attend regularly, has about 1,200 people going there, and on one Sunday the pastor asked by a raise of hand of how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord. Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh people are going to uh chur- churches if they are you know out of duty they're getting jobs they're 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 uh, uh sacred town ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in and and they're not learning to evangelize and so this church that i've been attending now for nearly three years uh I've, i haven't been invited to one person's house yet uh, or out to lunch um they have the glad-handing thing and, and the, you know, shaking the hands, get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But, but they're not teaching what Paul said about um, um, the gift of hospitality. Mm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, he dies, you know, whatever reason, the church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be a family, as well as be a family to their their neighbors and their co-workers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not, they've not, they're not being taught hospitality. So what, what do you see? Do you see that as being something?
1: Wow, some really good observations. What about that, Dr. Devine?
3: I want to count a,
2: a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos. And my uh, uh, youngest son, is a, is a, he's a student in, in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it. And it's a remarkable thing. And so they're, they're most strong in the ways that, that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. And I will say this. The trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and, and the church is, is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger because people are not going to use their time to be involved in in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. And I, But I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is can can disciples make other disciples
1: well therein goes a real important key because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or or the keys to evangelism, I mean doesn't this really come down to the matter of of a lack of real proper discipleship? I mean how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation and yet they They don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone.
2: Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago, and uh, they're they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these in these areas, and I'm so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future.
1: You are you getting a sense that the emphasis on And I'm going to meddle here for a moment. Uh, One of the things that I'm pretty good at, (laughs) Uh, there's been such an emphasis on so-called church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches, it seems, as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment or not so good. As a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes,
2: and I I believe that um, you know the the church growth movement, beginning with seeker sensitive and then uh, purpose driven. Uh, and, and various things that really the church growth movement has morphed. It has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of uh, sort of, figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, As a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. Churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on. And that uh, a lot has been learned. Uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down.
1: And, and perhaps the, the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so called experts and teaching us how to do church right and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, you even know the author personally. Uh, The book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, "Replants: How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, welcome back to the program. Class is now in session. Long time listeners to this radio program know that I am not necessarily a major fan of government education. Oh, I think the concept of public education is is a great one. And I think providing quality, free education to uh, those in our nation is something that is very important to do for our children. And I wish that we could do more even for higher education, as many countries are able to provide higher education at little or no cost to their students. That said, government Education, as it is today, is something that is quite troublesome. Now, I won't waste your time reading from one of my favorite documents that uh, we got from an insider of the California Teachers Association, the uh, Guidelines for Academic Freedom in Public Schools, which came out several years ago, that uh, identifies a number of enemies of um, public education, including, um, let's see here, you'll love this enemies list. Uh, Some names will sound... uh, uh, familiar to you uh, the Christian Coalition is on it, Focus on Family, Eagle Forum, Traditional Values Coalition, the Rutherford Institute, Concerned Women for America, um, on and on the list goes. That That's who's on their hate list. And, of course, Friends of Public Education, uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, People for the American Way, a National Coalition Against Censorship, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, uh, the American Civil Liberty. Union, on and on the list goes. I've read some of this to you in the past, uh, and you know that it is an eye-opener to be sure. Well, my next guest, in fact, had a little bit of an education, so to speak, on what goes on education himself. Uh, He's the founder of the Education Action Group, regular contributor to townhall.com, owned by this fine radio station's parent company, Salem Communications. Uh, His new book is called Indoctrination, How Useful Idiots, I love the subtitle, How Useful idiots are using our schools to subvert American exceptionalism. And Kyle Olson, great to have you on the program tonight.
4: Thank you very much.
1: There seems to be certainly a significant shift that has taken place in public education in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. I remember uh, Phyllis Schlafly's best-selling book, Child Abuse in the Classroom, that exposed what was going on in the uh, 1970s. And and even just prior to that, we've made the shift from what traditionally had been teaching our children how to think to now today teaching them what to think.
4: That's right. And and in fact, what is happening is we have this social justice agenda in American classrooms, where instead of kids thinking in uh, in terms of black and white, right, uh, black and white, uh, right and wrong, uh, good and bad, um, the social justice agenda is to have students develop this nuanced view, where um, you know they're they're thinking in shades of gray, and so uh, this this moral relativism that is being pushed now. And so what I tried to show parents and taxpayers uh, in my book is all of these examples of lesson plans, textbooks, curriculum, videos um, that are in public school classrooms today, not every single classroom, uh, but many of them around the country, Uh, these issues that are being pushed on kids at very young ages. um, Parents need to know about it, uh, and they need to stand up and do something about it.
1: Let's talk about what they need to know about all of this. I mean, to begin with, we certainly have heard the studies. We know of the reports. We've seen the kids come home with the report cards. We know that achievement at certain levels in government education today is so dismal. And ironically, consistently, the unions have been so opposed to any sort of performance standards to the point where you wonder, well, are are they first and foremost there to educate our kids? Is this about jobs or is there something other agenda going on here?
4: Well, unfortunately, I think it really does come down to jobs. I mean, that's why, you know, you think back um, during the stimulus and, uh, and all the other bailouts that have been proposed over the last couple years, and none of the, none of the spending and uh, proposed new spending coming out of Washington, D.C., had anything to do with student achievement, um, raising test scores, making sure that every child can read when they graduate which seems like such a radical concept um but instead it was about jobs and protecting jobs um uh, in those sorts of things and you know on my most cynical days i think that public education public schools are little more than public works projects for the adults
1: mm. And to some degrees, not only keeping themselves employed uh, with very little standards. And, of course, once you get teacher tenure as part of the process and realize that the largest and most powerful union in America today. And I I love to pose this question to uh, the unindoctrinated that will say, well, it must be the Teamsters or maybe it's the the Longshoremen's Union or, uh, you know, some, some similar union that they're familiar with. Until you tell them, no, it's the NEA, the National Educators Association. That is the most powerful union uh, literally on the planet, Uh, all of which. And again, I'm not saying that that teachers don't have a right to collective bargaining and certain, you know, employment protections and things of this sort. But when it goes so far that that the teachers rights, even at at so-called educational uh, liberties um, or instructional freedoms, academic freedoms, uh, take precedence over actually giving the children an education that they can walk away with and do something with, I, I think it's an absolute crime.
4: That's right, and and going back to how you opened the segment where you mentioned the different organizations, that shows that the NEA, the National Education Association, is more about uh, – it's a political organization. It is not a professional organization saying, how do we make sure that we have a quality teacher in front of every uh, classroom in America? That's not what it's about. It has a political agenda. Unfortunately, it's a hard-left political agenda. It's run by um, left-wing activists um, that are elected and, and make the decisions on behalf of many of the, the, uh, the rank-and-file dues payers around the country. And so the, the question is, um, that is, that is what we are running into. And so the question is, what can we do about it? And I, there's, there's many things. I mean, one, teachers, uh, rank-and-file teachers uh, who don't like this agenda who don't like paying the dues to see them go to uh, organizations like NOW and People for the American Way um, and NARAL and all of these other different organizations, Planned Parenthood, they've got to stand up. Teachers have got to stand up and say, I refuse to do this. And it's not easy. I mean, there was, an, there was a teacher that contacted our organization a couple days ago. Um, he tried to get out of the, the Michigan Education Association, which, like California, um, is a closed essentially a closed shop state but even though he technically dropped out of the union he still has to pay $500 a year in dues and so if that's to me that's one of the biggest shams in public education um, is that if you want if you want to be a teacher and if you want to try and make a difference in kids lives you have to pay this organization whether you want them or not and it's a huge sham
1: and of course, beyond that, uh, we get into the the instructional integrity or lack thereof, uh, which is going to be I think the eye opening focus of our conversation this afternoon and i I want listeners to really pay close attention there there's some things that we 're going to share with you this afternoon that 's going on most likely in your child's public school that I think you need to be aware of, and I think you'll think twice about whether or not you can actually afford to privately educate them or even homeschool them as superior options. Now, again, let me put in the disclaimer here before I get hate mail and calls of complaints. We're not suggesting that all teachers uh, have an agenda or that they don't care or that they're all about uh, indoctrinating kids. I know a lot of teachers that are fine, hardworking people that really care about kids, really want to equip kids with the tools and skills necessary to not just uh, think for themselves, but to ultimately succeed at life and excel in their chosen career or profession, uh, but make a difference in the world too. And we applaud all of them. The criticism today is what goes on in the agenda at the higher levels within the union, the union leadership, and quite frankly, those that do promote, uh what else can we call it, but a political and social activist agenda. Think, well, how widespread is this? <laughs> Where do you find out. We'll get to that aspect of our conversation with Kyle Olson. The book is called Indoctrination. How useful idiots are using our schools to subvert American exceptionalism. We'll get a time out here, then come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues